0: Okay, I I can't avoid asking you about um, sex robots. Uh, That wasn't in my Christian ethics textbook over 20 years (laughs) ago. Uh, So um, where to begin? I'll I'll just let you take this wherever you want to go with it. Get online, share your insights, thoughts, and feedback from the podcast with us on CBF's Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram pages. We also want you to join the CBF podcast community through our CBF podcast listener support page at cbf.net backslash podcast support. We see you, Pasadena, California, Louisville, Kentucky, Beaverton, Oregon, and Frankfurt, Germany. First-time listeners and long-time listeners, we are grateful you are here for the conversation. Go ahead and click that subscribe button, and be sure to rate and review the podcast as it helps others find us. We want to give a special shout-out to some of our listener supporters, including Carson Fushi, Caroline Bell, Cindy Foldenlore, Trip Hawthorne, Carlisle Mike Wick, and that generous anonymous donor that keeps giving in honor of CBF Grump. And before we move on, we want to give a special shout Shout out to our annual sponsors, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky and Christian Healthcare Ministries. Our guest for this week's CBF podcast conversation is Dr. Kate Ott. She's a professor of Christian social ethics and the director of the Steed Center on Ethics and Values, Garrett Evangelical Seminary. She has authored several books, including Christian Ethics for Digital Society and a newly released book that will be the focus of our conversation today, Sex, Tech, and Faith. She is the co-creator of BreakdownWhiteness.org. Kate, thank you for joining the conversation.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Well, I told you pre-record that nine times out of 10 when we edit stuff, it's me. And so we're just gonna leave half that stuff in there just so our audience knows just how much I can't actually read a manuscript that I typed <laughs> myself. So uh, so uh, for those that aren't familiar with your work, uh, tell us a little bit more about you.
1: Yeah, so I, um, well, first I recently moved from Drew Theological School in Madison, New Jersey to Gary Evangelical in Chicago. Um, Evanston, and there I am, <clears throat> excuse me, there I am running um, the SED Center for Ethics and Value. So we're just kind of getting that up and running. And as part of that, we'll have um, the project of Breakdown Whiteness as one of our key uh, foci. So a group of scholars and I got together. Um, well, we actually got called out, I should say, in the summer of 2020. One of our African American colleagues who does a lot of prison abolition work on Twitter just said, "Hey, I'm I'm tired. There are too many people asking me for resources, all the way from you know other colleagues in theological schools to people at church asking her to like friends on the soccer field." Um, And she was like, I just need a place to send them that is created by white people for white people trying to do racial justice work. And so a group of us thought, okay, we are not doing anything significant. Um, I mean, we're showing up at protests, those kinds of things, but there's more that we could do with the resources we have. So we created the website Breakdown Whiteness, and it is primarily for white folks who are looking for resources and the the kind of concept behind it why it's called breakdown whiteness is that in our conversations we had this vision um or I guess we were using the metaphor that like white supremacy is created brick by brick you know there's different aspects of our, our social institutions like economics um education prison policing, uh religion, any of those kinds of things that form these individual things that you could be, could be an entry point for you to learn about how systemic racism is formed in the United States. But together, they they come together to form systemic racism. So when you come to the site, our idea is breakdownwhiteness.org. When you come to the site, you can kind of go to that entry point. Like maybe your community is really interested in education or really interested in economics or really interested in talking with kids and educating kids. So it's also age group divided. Um, But yeah, so that was a big project that we had in 2020, which I've really loved doing because most of my other work is on sexuality, technology, professional ethics, working with ministers, parents, and kids. And so this just was a really great opportunity to kind of branch out from that with something that's personally a moral conviction and work i think we need to be doing in the world and bring it together with my other interests around children youth parents and ministry
0: hmm. well, let's uh, jump to the book um sex tech and faith this is a, an examination of ethics for a digital age you wrote as christian sexual educator i know many of us lack the ability to have a frank and accurate conversation about sexual behaviors that also respect the sacredness of sexuality and relationship. This book strives to model how to do this. In in your research and sense of vocational calling, did you uh, did you ever imagine that it would uh, bring about a collision of sexuality, the digital landscape, and, and ethics?
1: No, in fact, I think in the in the preface to the book, I say something like, "None of this technology, or most of it, didn't even exist when I was doing my PhD." Um, which I hope tells you about the massive explosion of digital technology that has happened in a very short period of time, um, not that old, uh, but I could not imagine even having a conversation about sex robots or about virtual reality. They just, yeah, I'm sure they existed in some lab somewhere, and but I had no knowledge of them. And I didn't think they were gonna be something that when I decided to address sexual ethics, in our faith communities that we would need to be talking about right now. But over time, so my um, my first book, um, Sex Plus Faith, talking to your children from birth to adolescence, really, I was in all of these churches, talking to parents, talking to young people, teenagers. And I just, I started to get all of these questions about digital technology and a lot, was, was concerned, fear-based, worried, and there was good reason to be concerned around a lot of it, but what I realized was I was hearing the same kinds of response to new forms of technology that I often hear when people talk about sexuality, right? It's either totally good in this little confined place, or it's a slippery slope to like all the horrible things in the world that we cannot control and for me as an ethicist i thought okay this is like we need to take a step back and what i did when it came to thinking about sexuality and talking about that in faith communities and educating about it was to say actually if we know more about how this works how our bodies work how how we form relationship and what works for us what's healthy about those relationships if we brought that same model to thinking about digital technology, then we could start to have conversations that that empower us to make good decisions as opposed to either being driven by the technology or you know, just sort of throwing our hands up and saying, it's all bad. don't don't use any of it.
0: Well, in many regards to kind of build to um, certain parts of this conversation that you've raised in the book, I think we need to understand a few foundational aspects of it. So let's talk more about the concept of, of ethics. You argue, many of us think of ethics as a science somewhat like mathematics. We plug the components of human actors and social circumstances into an ethical rule book and voila, we get the right answer of how to behave. So how are ethics shaped and how do people know what is the right ethical viewpoint to interpret the world and their actions?
1: I, I mean, if I could answer that question directly, I wouldn't have to do this job anymore. Um, but that's <laughs> one <of> the reasons.
0: <laughs> Let's do a whole podcast of, episode just yeah. on that one question.
1: <laughs> it's well, one of the reasons I love ethics. Yeah, yeah go ahead.
0: Well, I guess in light of since ethics isn't like just this mathematical equation, right? Uh, How then can we view ethics? You know, how is that shaped? Um, You know, why is it a little bit more cumbersome than just a, you know, a simple answer to, to certain issues?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things I love about ethics that I think probably frustrates the seminary students in my classroom the most is that... There isn't one answer because context, time, all of these things shape how ethics gets put into practice. So there's lots of, you know, historical ethics writing where people talk about certain principles or values, right? So we can can define something like respect. What respect looks like in a one-on-one or community relationship can shift based on who's participating, um, what kind of social context it's in. And that doesn't lessen the idea that respect is a value we should live by. I think it actually makes it all the more interesting and really forces us to do the work of ethics, to think about what is that gonna look like in this particular context? How do I know when respect is being acted out? Um, you know, in a relationship. So for me, I think of ethics much more and there's a lot of scholars who join me. This isn't just my idea. Um, Thinking about ethics as uh, sort of creative moral formation as art, as play. We, We like, we take the stuff that's around us. And if we are intentional, we can be really, curious and creative to mold that into new ways of being together that promote flourishing that promote health and and i think i mean i for me as a christian i feel like that's exactly what jesus was trying to do or at least the narrative in the gospel we have about jesus trying to do that and i think that's why he was confusing especially the disciples because he wasn't just saying here's your one answer here's what you should do even in some cases you know it's contradicts do this in this case don't do it over here um you know go ahead and find the stranger find the worst person in town and actually sit with them that's not that's not what our rule book would actually tell us to do and and so it's almost as though he's like throwing out the rule book and saying we need a new way of being together and i want to follow that model through as we think about doing ethics today
0: There's a fascinating telling quote um, I want to read. You wrote, The history of Christian sexual ethics is complex and dynamic, even though some Christian leaders and denominations speak about sexuality as though Christians have always believed and taught the same thing. Help us understand um, why this idea of a, you know, one solitary Christian worldview on sexuality is a misconception and how Christians have had a diversity of sexual, sexual ethics in their history.
1: Well, I think we and probably those of us in seminaries as professors are at fault for this, right? We pick the people who get to be the canon, who get to be the people who, you know, have really shaped our views. So we forget, for example, that what Augustine wrote, it was not the only Christian thinker in, you know, in early Christianity talking about how we should shape the sexual ethics of the church. You know, we had many other people who were dissenting from his viewpoint. Some people would say, okay, but his viewpoint won, or at least became dominant. So the questions I ask about that is why, right? What did that benefit for the church, for the church leaders? Who did it leave out? And I think many, a a lot of the ways our denominations have formed, and even the Protestant tradition has formed, have been you know, complex responses to the idea that when one version of theology becomes dominant, it leaves other people out. And so we form these other branches to say, no, we're here, we count, we actually see it this way. And to me, that's the beauty of Christianity. So when I hear, you know, a church leader or someone who's, you know, comes to me and says, I'm really struggling with my sexuality, but this is what the church says. I, I always want to ask, like, which church, when? And if we all have relationships with God in community, like, to me, that's a really important fact about this. This isn't just me going off and saying, I think Christian sexual ethics should be X, and you get to go off, Andy, and say, Christian sexual ethics should be Y. No, we're supposed to be in conversation, in community, wrestling with it. But when we stop the wrestling, I think that's when we foreclose on the complexity of who God is, who God created us to be, and why we form communities. So I just, I want to open up that complexity and say, let's keep wrestling with it. Because honestly, that's what folks have done for centuries in the Christian tradition. When people want to just say, there's only one way to do this. Or even when folks say to me, like, well, what about, what about biblical sexuality? I think, I don't know. Have you read the Bible? (laughs) There's a lot in there we don't agree with. Um, there's not one consistent sexual ethic in the Bible. So we don't even have a text, a history, a community that that gave us a single sexual ethic, right? We we live in these complex, dynamic relationships, trying to seek what we think God's calling us to.
0: It'd be amazing if it was that simple to tell so many of our churches that are divided and denominations that keep splitting over over sexuality, but that's another conversation in podcast interview for another time. <laughs> um, you know, as you teach and write on the digital world and its intersection with our ethics, um I imagine it's fascinating to examine why the online world elevates a different type of behavior from most people. And for example, studies have found that most people are uh, more likely to write something towards another individual that they would never say to that person's face. Or people are more likely to travel to explicit websites that if we're a physical location, they would never darken the structural door of that place. So uh, to begin to examine um, an ethic for a digital world, um, I imagine that you have to do a little bit of of di- different kind of mental framework in helping people understand where our minds go when we're online versus our physical bodies, and how we participate and engage with others.
1: But in we early on sort of talked a little bit about the ways in which I often, in my work, try to try to provide sexuality education, sexual literacy to the reader, so that they have the information to be able to really think about a more <clears throat> complex way that our sexuality functions. I'm trying to do the same thing with digital technology and digital literacy so that we don't see it as either, you know, this magical thing that transports me across the world on my phone or, you know, this horrible technology that's destroying society. But then we actually take time to think about how it works and how it functions. And to me, that's a really important entry point in the sense that you know, yes, I agree, and I do talk about the ways in which um, one of the design pieces of sex tech, especially online, and and the kind of both softwares but hardwares folks can can use, have privatized sexuality and sexual exploration, even more so than it was previously. So yeah, if we think about online pornography, you don't need to walk into the corner store and perhaps people from your neighborhood are there and they see you buy the magazine that has the black strip over the top of it, you know the things I remember as a child like up in the magazine aisle, um, where the community would know what you were doing, right? Now in some cases the community knowing that could be really helpful, could help you think twice about maybe not posting that or not going to that site. On the other hand, as we just talked about, the ways in which our sexual ethics function to control certain people, certain bodies, certain expressions of sexuality could also be really harmful. But there are ways in which using digital technology has really opened up, you know, let's let's say for an LGBTQIA kid who is in high school and really does not have anyone around them that, that understands their struggle that that embodies who they see themselves to be in the world, right? They can actually go online and be connected to a community like that, that can both be supportive and educational for them. Now, easily, right, folks can go online and <clears throat> watch really sort of sexually violent or abusive kind of material. So I'm not trying to say it's all good or all bad. I just want us, for example, as one of the design issues in digital technology to recognize that privacy is a primary component of design around sex tech. As Christians, might we wonder what would happen if we pushed for that design issue to not be primary? What if we pushed for community to be part of how we think about design in the sense that, you know, when I go on a dating app, I don't leave all my friends, family, and friends behind. But instead, there's ways to, like, share that with my family and friends the same way I would if I was dating offline and, and folks would run into us or know us or I would talk about it. Um, so I think there's ways in which we can bring our values to the design to help those aspects of it and, and create spaces for people's different needs with regard to that.
0: Yeah, I mean, uh, physical presence has a lot to do with the social accountability. Um, cognitive uh, sociologists have studied the effects of isolation and proximity to our willingness to act and speak and hold certain beliefs when we're not forced to be among others, especially those who don't hold the same views as as we do. So, you know, therefore, it's understandable how people can develop certain behaviors online, especially when it comes to cyberbullying, sexual exploitation, let alone you know the propagation of conspiracy theories and lies and racism and oh. hate rhetoric <laughs> yes you know so how do we how do we cultivate a digital ethic knowing that our natural cognitive impulses is developed you know developing these behavior traits in our isolation
1: so i i agree with you that there's an aspect of it that is our that sort of human wiring but i i want to stress that there's also a part of it that's digital wiring and the way the software is designed So that's a place where, in this text, I don't spend a lot of time on it, but in Christian Ethics for a Digital Society, that's where I try to, my other book, I try to really make the case for social engagement, um, for pushing in terms of legislation around design kind of issues. So I think there's that piece of it that needs to happen, and we need we need to raise our digital literacy so we can actually advocate around those kinds of issues and so that our public square can do the work of pushing for different kinds of design. On the sort of human aspect side of it, in this text in particular, what I'm trying to do is both give the reader the digital literacy component, the sexual literacy component, and then each chapter ends asking the reader to think about what their ethic would be that they would bring to the use of this kind of technology and how they employ their theological values as they make those decisions. So the primary approach I have is not like that there is one way that this is gonna work, but that there's a process we could follow that I think would help us actually bring our faith values to our use of digital technology and and sex tech in particular. So for example, if, if you take the time to really think about, you know, what kind of relationship do I want? What are the ethics that I feel the values that ground a healthy relationship? Not what behavior should I engage in? Not what orientation or gender identity is the person or the people. What are the values I really want lived out to know that this is a good and healthy relationship? You can bring those same values to the interactions that you have online. Now, again, like we said, there's less accountability to you living those out. Whereas, you know, if you're offline, people might actually check you. I do think people check each other online as well. I don't want to say it's a, you know, slippery slope kind of thing, but that's where I think we have to, because the technology changes so quickly and the way it's designed shifts and shifts obviously towards values that we might not hold, you know, around either privacy or issues of engagement because engagement raises ad revenue and the companies get paid. So I think we as users need to establish and understand our values first. And if we don't talk about that in faith communities, where are people gonna talk about it? If all we do is either talk shamefully about sexuality or Sort of abdicate our ethical ideas around digital technology because it's just too advanced for our church conversation. Where are everyday members of our faith community going to have these kind of conversations? Like, hey, here's my value and here's how I would live it out online.
0: We need to pause to tell you about one of our annual sponsors, Christian Healthcare Ministries. You want to create a strong Christian family that will all hold one another through thick and thin. What if healthcare worked the same way? With Christian Healthcare Ministries, budget-friendly compassionate care is within your reach. CHM empowers you to pursue excellence in healthcare without added stress or the need to cut corners. Whether you're looking for a comprehensive maternity program or the flexibility to choose your own providers, CHM has options to fit your family's specific needs. As the nation's first and longest serving health cost-sharing ministry, you can rest assured knowing that you are making a difference in the lives of fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Plus, you'll receive all the faith-based support of joining the larger CHM family. Encouragement and spiritual resources created for you and your little ones is just the beginning. Sounds different? It's by design. Join hundreds of thousands of members and discover the biblical solutions to your health care costs. To learn more, visit chministries.org.
1: Since 2016, CBF has brought you episodes of interviews with authors and practitioners for conversations that matter. These stories of creativity and innovation have garnered weekly support from around the United States and the world. We are inviting you, the listeners, to join us in connecting with the podcast. Become a monthly listener supporter and receive some perks, including name recognition on the podcast
0: Pornography, um, like most other platforms, it has become more accessible to most people considering, you know, we all have this small computer in our pocket versus the teenager trying to sneak into watching it on the family desktop computer. Um, you make the argument in the book that pornography usage is not the same for all people, such as individuals and couples. Um, what, do you, what do you mean by that? And how does that reshape an ethic around it?
1: So pornography use and I think here I also in the book sort of use a couple of different forms of language uh, that sexuality education has brought forward so some folks make a distinction between pornography and sexually explicit material and what they mean is that pornography tends to be on that commercialized end it tends to often be fairly heterosexist um, kind of fake cinematic in some ways Uh, oftentimes also racist and kind of portraying very stereotypical views of sexuality. I don't think your everyday person walks around with those distinctions and is like, oh, that one's pornography, this one is healthy sexual explicit material. But I think as as we try to make a distinction, we could start to see, okay, yeah, something that's that's abusive, racist, that's not good for any of us to watch, regardless. But It's something that's helping a young person understand how a sexual behavior is done or works is educational. So a lot of the research around sexually explicit material shows that there is a very small group. And I think this is kind of a myth we live with. It gets blown out of proportion. There's a very small group of mostly young heterosexual men, who, for whom, a number of other social factors, right? So this isn't causal, this is just correlative, right? These factors all come together in some strange mix we can't absolutely, you know, know or, and those folks often experience compulsive behaviors related to pornography, but they have all these other factors that go into that, right? They might have some antisocial behavior to begin with, problems with communication across especially gender lines, but also just general communication problems, low self-esteem, perhaps other kind of behaviors that might become compulsive as well because of brain chemistry related issues. So the research on this has been really ramped up in the last couple of years and is really helping us understand that there's a subgroup of folks that, for whom pornography usage, is potentially going to be really problematic to their sexual health, to their understandings of communication and gender dynamics. And so then it becomes cyclical. So you're already kind of have some trouble with forming relationships, with trying to express your sexuality in a healthy way. And then you use online pornography and it shows you all these things that aren't really real um, and divorces it from relationships. Just focuses really on a single or multiple kinds of behaviors and then you go try to form relationships based on that script and it fails and it becomes cyclical for many many other people that is not their experience of use of online sexually explicit materials or pornography many other folks especially women use it to learn about their own sexuality, learn about desire and pleasure, what turns them on, how to communicate about that. Um, Same with uh, lesbian, gay, bisexual, trans folks. It becomes a space where they can be empowered with knowledge that is not readily available socially to them. And it becomes, for many of them, a safer place to express their sexuality while they're trying to figure out how to do that offline in ways that will keep them safe. So I, I think those are very different experiences of pornography, online sexuality, online sexually explicit materials that we don't talk about. We just kind of paint a broad brush and are like, "This is pornography. It's bad, and it's bad because of this like small group of people we see using it." And to be honest, a lot of um, a lot of sexuality counselors, sexuality educators. We'll also talk to partners or couples about, you know, if they're having trouble with communication or talking about how they express their sexuality, to engage sexually explicit materials to start that conversation or help them kind of understand what works for them. And the only places in which that can be problematic, one is when a counselor or an educator <laughs> is not part of it, but also where we have that subgroup of, of you know, heterosexual men who perhaps watch online pornography that is degrading, stereotypical. And if you do that with a partner who also is, you know, concerned about their self-esteem and communicating, wanting to empower themselves, that can create a negative dynamic as well.
0: It's fascinating. And, you know, reading your book and then trying to do some research outside of this, just around um, these things, I find it, I found it difficult. It seems that most people that are doing studies on, uh, pornography usage are uh, far-right Christian groups. And so there's a particular ethical slant that they're looking at for that. Um, there's just fascinating uh, correlation there. Um, okay. Let
1: me just quickly say about that, Andy. I One of the things that I found most fascinating was um, a study, I think it's out of the UK, but it's in the book, so people can find the reference, that people who report being religious So, and I don't know exactly how they defined that, but participating regularly in a faith community reported at a much higher level that they were addicted to pornography, but then when asked, well, how do you use it? It nowhere near met the standard for compulsive behavior that that the uh, World Health Organization has defined and done research on. And so I think we have a really skewed perception and we bring our own sort of shame around talking about sexuality, enjoying enjoying sexual behaviors from a Christian perspective, we bring that shame to the use of sexually explicit material.
0: Okay, I, I can't avoid asking you about um, sex robots. Uh, that wasn't in my Christian ethics textbook over 20 years ago. <laughs> uh, so um, where to begin? I'll, I'll just let you take this wherever you want to go with it.
1: Well, I did not think I was ever going to be talking about sex robots either, but <laughs> when I started doing I started doing this research, I thought, you know what? this is like this is a dominant conversation. People are really talking a lot about this. And to be honest, you know, the sex robots that perhaps we imagine or are depicted uh, in our media, they do not exist. So let's first say that. Um, you know, for the most part, it's a, sex doll with what you might imagine as an AI kind of in its head your your home your home helper like the uh Siri or okay Google on your phone I'm not going to say the other one because in my house it will respond to me um it's so it's not the level that we think it is it's not this being that like can walk around your house and carry on a conversation with you however the reason I think it was so important to have a chapter on this is that one, the development's going fast. It is going to come up in our faith communities and as folks in ministry have to counsel people about their decisions around this. The other aspect of it is that I think it raises a really important question for us, which is there are many people who perhaps will find that Choosing to companion with a sex robot is, I'm I'm gonna say easier. (laughs) I don't know if that's the right word, but it doesn't include all of the messiness of human relationships, human communication. I think from my perspective, it also sets up a opportunity for companionship for many individuals for whom You know, our general social, cultural ideals of what manhood or femininity, what those kinds of stereotypical views of sexuality are, that we exclude people from having companions, from having loving relationships where they are not repeatedly judged. That to me tells something intrinsic about humanity that we want to be in a relationship, that we want, many of us, not all, but to express our sexuality. And I mean that in a variety of ways. You know, people who who are in the sex style community are not our stereotype of someone who just wants a doll in a like Barbie-like design in order to abuse or use. No, many of these folks have intimate relationships they would describe as intimate. That, that they care for these dolls, that they have created relationships, backstories, narratives about how they interact because they want that. Now, the other thing about that community is they don't have any um, false notions that the robot or sex doll is a real person. Like they are making moral distinction. This is not a person, I treat it as a companion. I love it, I have an intimacy with it. We do this with all kinds of things in our lives. We do it with our our pets. We, perhaps some people do it with their, their plants, their flowers. I know a lot of people who do it with their phones. Like they cannot live without the companionship of their phone and what it connects them to. So I think the questions around sex robots makes us rethink some core questions of how we understand relationality, how we as Christians continue to socially ostracize certain folks, and how our narratives around shame and sexuality, I don't want to say forced, but lead people to make decisions that that maybe we wouldn't promote, but are the best decision for them, because they cannot find a place in the way we currently think or talk about sexuality and the kinds of relationships we promote as the best.
0: At, at our most carnal nature, um, people's, uh, you know, use around things like uh, pornography and not to mention on the hookups and digital sexual interaction. Um, you know, I'd say is a desire for intimacy, um, but also that carnal desire for mm-hmm. sexual gratification. Um, you wrote, Achieving erotic attunement is something most of us would struggle with in our offline context. It requires we tap into a suppressed theological tradition that values embodiment, trusts human ability to cultivate desire in meaningful and fulfilling ways, and engages in a multi-sensory and tactile experience of knowing. This is difficult work for those who suffer from Christian shame and taboo about sexuality mixed with severe lack of quality of sexual education. I wonder if you'll take us a little deeper there.
1: Let me first say that that notion of erotic attunement comes from Christina Traina, who is a Christian ethicist, and her work in, in describing what erotic attunement is comes from how she understands parent-child relationships, specifically mother and child relationships. So I think, I, you know, and she does actually, she uses this term a lot when it comes to Sexuality, sexual relationships. She's talking about it, about sensuality, but also across a power dynamic in a relationship that I think makes many of us uncomfortable. And that's a key point in understanding what I'm saying in that context is that when we reduce sexuality to only being about sexual behaviors, we have now severed it from what you just talked about. that desire that we have for intimacy, for companionship, for being known, from sensuality. For most of us, the actual act of a sexual behavior is not the most gratifying part of it. It's actually, you know, a variety of forms of touch, of feeling seen and beautiful and loved. And and that's about sensuality. It's about our variety of senses being called forth in how I am embodied in the world, and so I think key to that that notion of moving into erotic attunement is one not being afraid of our bodies, of our embodiment, celebrating it, celebrating all the diversities of what that looks like um, being created as humans. I think the other piece of it is understanding how our bodies work. So that's the piece about sexual health and sexuality education. Most, our dominant sort of Christian view on sexual pleasure around sinfulness is antithetical to to the science of the sexual response, right? Like there's a lot about sexual response and sexual pleasure that we cannot control. And yet we can damage that response through trained, shame-filled understandings of it. So a number of folks I shouldn't say a number. A lot of research shows us that individuals who experience sexual dysfunction experience that dysfunction because of the shame they have around their body, the the shameful messages that are internalized around being able to experience sexual pleasure. I don't think that's what our churches want. I hope not. I don't know if they realize that many of the messages like I'm sorry, but I think most teenagers and the ones I talk to affirm this, what they hear from people is sexuality is this amazing created gift from God and who you are, but it's horrible and dirty until you get married. Like, just don't try to, don't experience it. Don't engage it, nothing, right? There's nothing magical about marriage that suddenly is going to make you forget all the bad things that someone told you about sexual pleasure, about desire, about being able to attune to it. So that's the other part of this. It's not about controlling it in the sense that I say, well, I will never experience this. Because you can't necessarily control your body, how your body responds. You can control the behaviors after that response. And that's what attunement is about. Trina's trying to say to us, we should actually take a moment, step back, recognize, reflect on, appreciate the amazingness of your body, to have these sensual experiences, to long for intimacy, attune yourself to those feelings and desires so that you don't perhaps act on them and harm someone else, or so that you can cultivate them in relationships where you are safe and find them to be healthy. And I, I, I hope, I mean, regardless of digital spaces, even though we know that that's often a space where people don't attune themselves because of anonymity and can just do what they like, I, I want churches to talk about sexuality and sexuality education from that perspective, attuning, cultivating, as opposed to controlling, waiting, shaming, So that when we do get into healthy relationships or we get into relationships that we want to work on our values in, that we don't have to undo all these negative aspects in the process.
0: Yeah, I wonder to a certain degree, um, you know, the evangelical purity culture, we've done several episodes on this over the last couple of years. And looking at its effects on um, you know gen X and um, millennials when it comes to sexuality and sexual repression and things of that nature. you wonder if that that focus on, you know the the e quote evilness of sexuality and uh, to repress your feelings and your thoughts um if it is has driven people to, some unhealthy practices online as a result of being told, you know, you should never physically exert yourself um, in any kind of way, except once you get married and then try to figure it out from there. So um, it's fascinating correlation between some of these things. It'd be interesting to do some uh, more studies to see if there is some sort of connection between um, the online digital platform and the religious culture that people um, are raised in.
1: Well, I think for that, we could look at some of the new research and work that's coming out. There's a more popular article that was just written in Wired magazine about the use of surveillance software in churches around pornography, conservative purity culture churches. So the two aspects that I see there colliding is one, the message that that sexual desire is uncontrollable, right? That is why you keep falling into this stand of looking at online pornography. That's not true. Many, many of us as healthy adults recognize that, like, we can experience desire. I can be like, hey, that person's very attractive, but I'm not going to act on it. I don't need to act on it. That's attunement. You know, I believe anybody who's been a parent, you know, who's in, in you know, their sexual desire is peaked. They want to engage in something with their partner. And then, you know, you got to go pick up the kids from school or they just woke up and you got to stop. Most of us know that sexual desire is not uncontrollable, and that line of thinking and theology contributes to things like rape culture and sexual abuse. We just need to get rid of that. But that is a cornerstone of how many churches who use things like surveillance software around online pornography, how they talk theologically about sexuality. So they're not helping someone gain uh, sexual health. They're instead saying, we're gonna surveil you, which is also problematic in our digital culture. And what are we gonna do? But we're gonna promote the way the internet already works. You visit a site that we use a software that sends us reports that that site is being visited. So we're actually upping the number of, of hits that that site gets. So anyway, I just think that whole universe of what some churches are doing is bad theology, it's bad for sexual health, and honestly, it's exploiting the negative ways that the internet works. Sorry, that was a tangent. Let's
0: close. No, no, I, um, yeah, let's, as we kind of go from kind of the theological philosophical perspective of, of these things, let's move to kind of more of a, you know, in our final question here around more of a local church spiritual formation piece. So spiritual formation is key in the development of our ethics as as Christians, is there a way you'd recommend for pastors, um, local church leaders to approach cultivating a spiritual formation approach to Christ followers um, in their digital interaction?
1: I think the first step to that is just talking about it. There are amazing resources out there for various kinds of you know, spiritual practices, workshops, you know, activities you can do in your faith community to be more mindful about your engagement with digital technology. It doesn't have, I mean, I think most people would think that has nothing to do with sexuality, but with this broader understanding and definition of sexuality, thinking about it as sexuality, as intimacy, as how I understand my gender identity, how I form relationships, even the practice of saying, how much time do I spend online? Is it helping me form the the kind of connection and relationship I want with like this small group of people, even if I limited it to like, is it helping me form a better relationship with my family? If I took Advent <laughs> to be mindful of that, to study it, to think about it, to cultivate other practices that lead to what I really want in terms of that intimacy with that group of of folks in my relationships with them. I think that's already going to have an effect on how we think about sexuality and forming sexual relationships. So there is that aspect of it. I also, the text um, has a study guide at the end of it. It is written specifically for folks who are working with youth because I think youth are digitally saturated and need to have these conversations explicitly, but it's also a resource that any congregation could use. And again, if we're not talking about it, we are just saying, it. for me, it suggests that our online lives are a place where we don't need to think about how we're Christian because we don't talk about that when we get together as Christians. So if we want to think about the theology of the body, how I act out the love commandment, my participation in the body of Christ, my evidencing of the image of God, well, I am online, we have to talk about that in our faith communities. And I hope that the resource at the end of the text, whether you're adults or youth, is useful for getting those conversations started.
0: Our guest is Dr. Kate Ott. The book is Sex, Tech, and Faith, Ethics for a Digital Age. You can learn more about Kate's work at kateott.org. Uh, Kate, it's been fascinating speaking with you. Uh, thank you for reminding us not only to see God's image within us, but also those we interact with online, especially our passive interactions.
1: It's been my pleasure. I've really enjoyed this conversation. Thanks for having me.
0: Before we wrap up, we need to tell you about one more of our annual sponsors, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. Are you looking for a Bible study resource for your church? Responding to an invitation from the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship of Virginia, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky has produced Bible study resources that is available for free of charge. The study title, Faithful Curiosity, Five-Week Study of Luke and Acts, deals with three passages from Luke and two passages from Acts. It offers Bible study methods and provides two interpretive essays for each passage. The writers are BSK faculty, staff, students, and alumni. Download this resource for free today at bsk.edu backslash faithful. Okay, that's it. That's our conversation. If you want more, be sure to subscribe to CBF Podcast on all major platforms, including iTunes, Amazon Music, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Podcast. Don't forget to like and share this episode on your favorite social media platform. Go ahead and click that subscribe button. Be sure to rate and review the podcast as it helps others find us. Check out CBF.net for more information about church starters, field personnel, advocacy work, and much more. And, uh, oh, yeah. I think Whedon mentioned that you should uh, join the listener support community at cbf.net backslash podcast support.